Hello, welcome to the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya and this is episode number 62. Uh, This remote chat recorded on International Women's Day this year is with my friend Matt Watson, who is not only a fantastic drummer, but also a fantastic synth player. Um, So much that we've had to give ourselves a safe word just in case we went too far down the synthesizer rabbit hole um, and we were worried people were going to start tuning out. So our safe word is bananas uh it comes up whenever we get too close to getting a bit too nerdy deep um because this is obviously a podcast meant for everyone not just for the people who love synths even though you guys are my favorite um but for those of you who don't know synths matt mentions a few so i just thought i'd give you a heads up on um whenever he mentions his aks or uh, vcs3 or modular moog those are all synthesizers um that's probably all you need to know but Speaking of synths, the biggest thing you need to know is that Matt has an amazing show coming up on Saturday, the 27th of March in Melbourne. It's a synthesizer orchestra curated by Mess, uh, the Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio, um, at the beautiful Sydney My Music Bowl. So if you're in Melbourne, you should definitely go check out the synthesizer orchestra. I wish I could go. Um, It sounds like an absolute dream and I've put more information about it, including where to get tickets and the orchestra members in this episode's show notes. You can also see some links to check out some more of Matt's music, which is absolutely fabulous. Highly recommend you go click on those links. Matt's strange show story was a really good one. Um, It was illustrated by a friend of the podcast and friend of mine and Matt's, Miles Heskett. Miles has done an illustration for the podcast before. If you rewind to the spot episode, one of my favorite episodes and one of my favorite pictures. Um, Miles is amazing. And uh, so go and check out that artwork. Go and check out this artwork on the Hearsay Facebook page or uh, at Hearsay Podcast on Instagram. Um, You can see also more of Miles's stuff on Instagram at MilesKit, M-Y-L-E-S-K-E-T-T. He's the best. What can't he do? Um, I absolutely loved talking to Matt, uh, you know, and catching up about old times. He's also just had such an interesting career and it was a joy to talk to him about different kinds of music to, you know, the music that I talked to other guests about. Um, We went into you know conceptual art and ambient transient music and um it was a real thrill anyway go and see his amazing synthesizer orchestra Um, but in the meantime please enjoy podcast number 62 with matt watson so nice to talk to you it's been such a long time I know say thank you very much for having me um, on hearsay I w- we were just having a little pre-chat and we were saying how it's very likely that we might go down the synthesizer rabbit hole so we're going to keep each other in check and try to keep it relatable correct bananas bananas is our safe word yeah <laughs> Let's hope we don't need to use it um, <laughs> so I I met you um, for the first time I think 
um, when you started writing me emails 10, was it 10 years ago? No, maybe not 10 years ago. Yeah. You started writing me emails about this project that you were helping get together. It was 20 drummers and two synthesizer players um, and it was at the Sydney Opera House. Correct. And I have to be honest, when you emailed me for the first time, I was like freaked out. <laughs> I just did not know what that was going to be. Yeah. And it was fucking so fun. It was it was really fun. It was um and just just to just to um clarify to the show. So yeah. it was it was for Sydney Festival and the event itself was based on uh, Nick Zinner's 41 strings, which is something he put together uh for Earth Day. Um That's and right. I had had performed before. Anyway, uh an offshoot of that project was um was the project that we did which was called Four. And four, mm-hmm. four was four ones. yeah. So four drummers and two synthesizer players as the core group with sixteen other artists, um, percussionists, and drummers, and drum sets in various forms around it. Um, and so that was yeah, that was um, Hisham Baruch's project. But yeah, yeah, you were absolutely the the first person in my mind <laughs> when when I was asked to kind of help help suggest people. Um, it was so amazing, and it it was. Also, just so amazing that we got to play at the Sydney Opera House in the concert hall and um, just the vibe of it was so beautiful. And all of the drummers, like the, you know, the people with part kits, um, you know, they were all friends of ours. So it was like, it was such a fun time just to hang out with all of those friends. Many of those artists, I was, you know, so thrilled that they said yes and that I got to meet them because for a lot of people, I, I hadn't met them being from Melbourne and this being a Sydney project. Um, yeah. And or I should say, like a New York project, being that the um, uh, the producer and the core members uh, in the project kind of came out from New York, and then I was like the link. <laughs> so I was like, I, I was yeah. like, we must have Saya, and I'm like, cool, cool, Saya's awesome. Oh, and, that's so nice. Yeah. And you know what? It's so funny because just after that project, I got a um, fellowship. It's called the Grant McLennan Fellowship to go to New York. And I caught up with all of those people and I ended up playing a show with the three drummers and that was a score to a silent film together and I played the same keyboard that I played on four and it was just so fun and, you know, lifetime friends. Uh, yeah, well, and that, that's it. Like those, you know, that, that crew, that community are really, really amazing and the core group, again, to to, um, to clarify, I mean, the, the core group of four is like a, a you know a, a incredibly like impressive array of artists. Uh, Ryan Sawyer being one of the drummers. Brian Chase from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs being the other drummer. Um, and Hisham Barucha, uh, originally of Black Dice, um, and you know like like artist New York <laughs> uh, artist extraordinaire. Yeah, it was man Ben yeah. obviously Ben Vita. The the synthesizer link there is Ben Vita, who's just incredible um, sound so artist. Great. Yeah, modular synth artist. It was so funny. I don't know if I've ever told you this. When I went, I think it was my second night in New York, Hesham and I went out for dinner and uh, it w- was such a New York moment. He was like, oh, by the way, what shoe size are you? I was like, why? And he went, I just designed some shoes f- with Solange. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this is the most New York thing you could have said. I loved it. Yeah, they're, they're they're prolific prolific artists in all of them in their own right, and and yeah, you know I had kind of similar experiences, kind of coming uh, going over there for the first time. Yeah, just meeting so many artists, like people that I had 
I knew I was aware of or you know, knew their yeah. work and ending up in these kind of you know, very New York kind of moments. Yeah, I had so many of them with Hisham because I made myself a promise for that fellowship to say yes to everything that anyone told me about or invited me to. It's and a Hisham good attitude. Is, you know, his, his world is all just like bizarre artistic projects. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up at like metal shows in Brooklyn and what's it called? Like Vogue shows. Yeah. It was so amazing. I loved it. The last time I was in New York, I was there during fashion week and I went to, um, I ended up like at the G on the list to go to the GQ party and, and, um, just a lot of very kind of beautiful people in the room and Jeff Goldblum was there and it was like, that was the moment I was like, I don't, this just feels, it just it's just a very different life to what I'm you know, know like anything everything happens in New York and it's just yeah it goes without saying it's totally. just a very vibrant kind of place so. yeah and especially when you're hanging out with those people you know they're they're pretty extraordinary people that attract other extraordinary people so anyway I wanted to thank you for introducing me to to that project and to all of those people and I just had I just had such a fun time doing that it's so so nice and so so good and and yeah I mean you know like I'd been a was a fan, or sorry, am a fan of your work, and Aww. you know, at the time, you know, it was soon after you'd released your solo record, so it was like very much in like in in my mind, and like thinking about who that that person should be. So oh, that's so nice. I'm also a fan of your work, Matt, um, and I'd like to talk more about it on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Saya. Hey, before just before we go down that, just um. Just uh, happy International Women's Day oh, for today. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so happy to be doing this with you today. Thank you. This is really I'm nice. <laughs> That's a nice thing to say. I do feel lucky to be a woman today, and I'm I'm surrounded by a lot of really amazing creative women that I feel very grateful for, and I'm sure you are as well. Look, yeah, each year, you know, I, I mean, yeah, my my mind immediately goes to my obviously like you know my, my partner and and my my mother and my family, and then all of the women that are in my life who who impact my life in really positive ways. So, you know, I try I mean, I try to be that person every day. Um, but it's you know, it's important to kind of acknowledge it uh, today. So, yes. Absolutely. Um back to synthesizers. Yes. So <laughs> who are also important women in our lives. Um I well, so can we just circle back though? So you were saying that you, um, you know, you helped curate this four show, but before that, you'd done a bunch of work with the Boredoms with Hisham, hadn't you? You'd done yeah. some shows with them. Yeah, I th- look, that's where everything kind of started for me. And there's a whole bunch of uh, synchronicity, just things that happened at the right time. Um, it was like this kind of coalescence of lots of different aspects of my life that seemed to come together and and present these amazing opportunities which still inform I guess my creative life um, now. So how did that happen? I'll try and give you the succinct version. There's as you know there's uh, I have no short stories but I'll do my best. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well I took a little break from playing music live um, around the year 2000. I'd moved to Melbourne when I was very young. I was still 17 when I moved to Melbourne to be a, um, a professional drummer um, yep. and found myself in all manner of different um, musical contexts and experiences and met, you know, and played like a, a, like 
in so many different yeah, musical contexts that I just, I forget. I forget most of it. That's like the first phase of my musical kind of um, training is when I you know, studied music and done all this stuff. So I'd been exposed to lots of new music. You know, I, I was a, a young metal kid from the country. I liked, you know, like broad, broad strokes metal. So, you know, I was into like Metallica and Anthrax and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And obviously being a kid of the 90s as well, like I'd, I was the right age for, for bands like Faith No More and stuff like that. So for me, something like uh, Angel Dust was like like just a pivotal record that changed my listening. So, you know, I often like cite like my love of drone <laughs> music kind of started as a kid <laughs> with like um, Orion off Master of Puppets. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I just like and you know, there's there's stuff I've done with my AKS, I guess, which I which have kind of informed that in in my mind anyway. That's kind of where I trace the origins, and then um, yeah, like something like uh, like Angel Dust is like exposed me to these kind of different sounds and merging of like style and aesthetic and stuff. So you know, when when I moved to Melbourne and started studying jazz, somehow I got into study jazz. Um, uh, jazz drumming. As a drummer, yeah. So I started out as a drummer, um, and but I was exposed to stuff like, um, yeah, like Sly and the Family Stone, Parliament Funkadelic. I got really got into like Herbie Hancock's kind of electric period and Miles Davis's electric period, which is pretty classic kind of jazz school stuff. Um, particularly, I think someone that had like more of a rock kind of you know uncultured like rock background. <laughs> um, just Angel Dust and Metallica. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff, which you know, I still love. Like it's it's it you know, when I put it on it 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 it, it kind of fires me up in in, in it in its own way, in this kind of nostalgic way. But see, I'm already down the rabbit hole. That's all right. I like it. Keep going. Okay, so, you know, studying I'm I'm amongst a whole bunch of like kind of fusion heads, like fusion jazz, like drummers and and people like really well-trained mu- uh, musicians and I was just not that like I was I always was a bit like rough um you know I did, was never like a really refined um drummer but I had I had I guess I had some flair and and my own approach to things um but you know it was around that time I guess I started being exposed to like you know heading into to studios and doing like like session recordings and stuff like that um what kind of stuff? What what kind of sessions oh, were you doing? Oh, look, this is like, this is a world away. I remember going in when I was really young and I started, um, I was in this group with uh, John Castle who, yeah, oh, yeah. he's like produced like the bamboos and stuff like that. Megan um, Washington. Megan Washington. Yeah. But back, back then he was like, you know, 17 years old or 18 years old or something and he had built the shed at his parents' yeah. um, house. And we, so we, I started out like, I guess that's where I kind of cut my teeth, like understanding recording in a studio with a Mackie desk and an ADAT and different instruments and, and multi-tracking and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, around that time, like doing that and studying music at Box Hill TAFE, uh, they had a, a, you know, reel-to-reel and a, a big desk and stuff. So you're kind of exposed to stuff at that point, learning about MIDI, you know, <laughs> like having these long lectures about like, all what of the is MIDI? yeah, but the <laughs> dr- most dry version of, of like MIDI, yeah. <laughs> uh, like from an academic perspective of like, it's what it is. It's it's magic. That's it's magic, it right? Exactly. But you know, at that point too, it was kind of exposed to Notator. So we're working with with you know pretty basic PCs running Notator, and I, I kind of I kind of think like 
the combination of all of those things at that age mixed with like and I often like think back to being a kid and having this this like lucid dream that I still think of now and it's still very clear to me now but I used to as I was falling asleep I used to imagine like giants dancing on my eardrums and I'd and oh, I'd wow. And it's like this kind of sense of like sensory experience of like literally it's just the blood pulsing through your body, blood pulsing through your kind of head and or through your eardrums. Um, and so I think like as a at a really young age, I I was quite fascinating with those kind of sensory sounds. Did you already have tinnitus then? Is that what was ha- what was no, triggering? No, <laughs> no. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you got to be careful with that story because people will go, well. You know, maybe your hearing's just fucked, but it's it's it really wasn't. It was. I think it's just um, you know, I was a hypersensitive kid, so you're mm. kind of tuning into stuff. Um, and so you know, fast forward like you know many decades, and I think that you know my love of of my Cynthia AKS the sounds that I extract out of that kind of live in that environment. They live, you know. Oh, that's so cool. You know, a friend of mine said some years ago about. Um, a track that I released he's like it sounds like the history of my blood cells wow that's so <laughs> great you should put that in your bio yeah I think I had it there somewhere I mean sometimes the language freaks people out because they you know yeah it's, it's kind of a bit like you know you go again like going too far down that rabbit hole of of like describing bananas bananas <laughs> <laughs> Of being too like overly um, visceral or, or or sensory in the way that yeah, you explain yeah. music, it's quite challenging. I think if you live in a world where a song is, you know, like like music is a song, and that's how you you're entertained. Yeah, I think it is interesting to try to explain ambient or transient music because I think it's more a feeling rather than a a song. Yeah. You know, getting beyond the debate, you know, as far as like the the what is music kind of debate in response to contemporary kind of like popular form and then sound art or electronic music. Do you worry that sometimes you make the kind of music that's not relatable to people that don't have an actual appreciation for the instruments you use? Because, okay, so to speak on a very kind of personal note, it doesn't really bother me at the end of the day whether people know what's been used on the yeah with the music that I make like I make the music that I want to hear and it brings me joy if people if other people enjoy it they don't need to know what it was made of I think it's also about being able to justify what you're doing yeah absolutely and all the stuff that happens on the end of it is a byproduct of you being involved in the process of making art you know yeah and so if if your art is crafting songs with with you know lyrics that connect with human beings and you write that song that like connects with a generation (laughs) you know connects with everyone then that's you've like the byproduct of like putting your time into to developing yourself as a human being to kind of create something that does connect like the, the the byproduct is the um the the fact that you've got millions of people around the world that love that music so I, I guess like I try not to get too caught up in in anything other than just trying to create a project that makes sense to me. Yeah, and I but I feel like you also deal a lot with conceptual art. You've done uh, like live shows where there's no pre-recorded sounds. You're using all these machines that are 
sort of self-modulating or whatever and, and they're making their own sounds and you're not running anything into them that has existed before. And I think that is like such an exciting concept yeah. as well. It is like, and I think that you know, to 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 come back to to the actual synthesizers as as the um, like as the focus, like you know, like my favorite all time synthesizer out of everything I've ever played, even though it's got its flaws, it's <laughs> it's perfect in every way. That that's the synthy AKS. It really is just like this most complete, unique machine that has such an important place in the history of, of, you know, kind of modern synthesizers. And they look beautiful. And they're made in the 70s, aren't they? Those ones are really old. Yeah, the first the first was like 1969 for the VCS3 Mark One, And then... Oh, wow, yeah. And then um, the Synthi AKS was 72. You can still buy new Synthies, but they um, you, there's quite a long wait list uh, with Robin, who, who owns uh, EMS now. But I guess for, for anyone that doesn't know, do we need to say bananas? <laughs> no, I'm so interested why you love that one synthesizer. Yeah, I was very lucky to purchase one about 15 years ago. Mm. I think it wasn't the first synth I bought. The first synth I bought was back in the early, uh, mid-90s, like 94 or 95. I bought a, a Korg... Mini 700, which was oh, basically yeah. the first Korg monosynth. I have that one. Oh, you, you have that? Oh, those switches are so good. It's so great. It l- kind of looks a little bit like an organ, but it sounds nothing like an organ. All those like primary colours on the on the metal switches. Yeah. And this clicky switches are really like nothing feels like that anymore. Well, that would have been a really special first synth to get because that's also really old. That Those were made in the 70s as well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah early 70s. So it was Korg's first. I, th- I think I'm right in saying it was Korg's first um, mono synth. So, you know, if you if you want to track back to the first, um, say, modern synthesizer, so you mm. know, moving into the realm of transistors and stuff like that, like the, the bananas, 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 bananas. <laughs> uh, uh, Tell me about your personal connection to the synthy. Just wh- why the do you synthy, love that yes. one so much? Okay, so I think I love that because I just laboured with it for so long. Yeah. I tried to do things with it that it just didn't want to do. Great. So I tried to – people – everyone said, oh, it's kind of crap for, for doing, like, melodic stuff. You can't keep it in tune. And, like, they were right for the most yeah, part. Yeah, that's it a drifts. classic thing with old synthesizers. Yeah, it drifts and it gets wild, you know, it's like, it, so, you know, you could spend, you spend like, you know, 20 minutes just trying to like tune it. So get the, get C to C in tune <laughs> across octave and then, and then you go and get a quick sip of water and, <laughs> and then it's, it's out. It's out. <laughs> and that's because it's old, it heats up and, and, it, and yeah. the pitch drifts. Oh man, I played Big Day Out in like I don't even know, 2000 or something. And it was so hot that day because, you know, Big Day Out was in January um, yeah. that my my synth had detuned itself um, at like a fifth down. And so I couldn't even tune it with the tuning knob. I couldn't transpose it back into tune at all. Um, so I had to um, transpose all of my parts as I was going a fifth oh. down. <laughs> oh. It was a real drag. <laughs> Look, I know I know that very well. I actually just dealt with that yesterday with a Did with you? a um, Roland SH101. Yeah, that, like, that was you... the synth. That was it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's... 
So thankfully, <laughs> there was two uh, where we were where where we were rehearsing. There was two one hundred ones there, so I grabbed the other one, and that was the that range was right. of tuning of the 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 macro tuning that you could do on That's it was so like. Funny. It saved us, but it wasn't red. The 101 we wanted to use was red and the other one was grey, so it wasn't as exciting. But Both of mine are grey, but still sound amazing. They do sound amazing. (laughs) I keep uh, digressing as well. Like you asked me a very simple question and (laughs) it's like I I give you the entire like history of every event that happened to that point. Well, now I feel like I don't have to ask you any more questions about your past, so that's great. Um, Yeah. No, I I do really want to know how you started playing with the Boredoms. I think that was the question I asked. That was the question, yes. So, so, okay, so, okay, so I mentioned early on that I took a break from playing live music between the year 2000 and 2005. Why? I had, I was burnt out at a very young age. Um, Mm. I'd played in like, you know, a hundred thousand bands and just felt like I was trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. And so by the age of, by the age of 25, I was just kind of done. And I, and I, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like not, not done as in, you know, I was done. Like not meant yeah, to be like a real downer. But no, no, it was more just like I, there's more, there's more than just like playing drums for other people. And I think it was around that age where, where I kind of started to think more in terms of like an art aesthetic rather than like career musician. Yeah. Um, and that's all it was. So I took some time and I built a studio at home and, and you know, bought some recording gear and bought a guitar and had, you know, my, like some electronics, like a Roland MC303 thing. And I'd sold my Korg Mini 700 to buy that stupidly. But No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, <laughs> that's what happened in that, in, in those days. Um, it's not, it's, it's a common story. Um, and so I took some time. Anyway, I, when I came back, I'd. I'd met some people and we sh- had a shared interest of like some weird music. And we were, you know, it was around that time I was, I was becoming aware of Buchla as well. So I was like. Yeah, so that's a, that's a synthesizer brand. They were kind of the, f- uh, like I don't want to make any grand claims, but you could kind of like argue that they, they were kind of the first there in, in, the, in the first half of the 60s building, yeah. um, building synthesizers. So very different West Coast, very weird, not traditional. Very colourful, very weird looking yeah 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 um and so you know i had these interests i was like listening to weird like harry parch and lots of like you know uh like outsider artists or experimental kind of classical artists i was you know you know like listening to like moog records so jean jacques perry yeah the the moog indigo record and stuff like that that which had a more novelty kind of like joe meek kind of sense to it um so i was listening to lots of stuff like anyway connecting and all, all the while like you know listening to tangerine dream and noi and all those kind of great german groups yeah but crowd met yeah met met some people and and we just started jamming and then one day um i met uh ollie olsen who ollie is like an australian legend and we got along really well uh we made a record together the first time we met um which was this amazing uh, record called The Mechanical Eye. Uh, and that was oh, with cool. another. Oh, cool. I haven't heard that. Yeah, I'd it's buried somewhere. I oh, know, it's buried somewhere. Like, <laughs> like, like a lot of that <laughs> stuff. But it, it is, I think it was available online at some point. Um, but that was with a, an artist named Chris Rainier as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I think it was really through that Ollie, like we played together on and off for many, many, many years and many different projects. Ollie, um, uh, Boredoms were big fans of Ollie's. And so I was right. entered into Boredom's radar through my association with Ollie. And then there was a show and was that, that show was in 2010, wasn't it? That yeah. 10, 10, 10, is that what it was called? Or yeah, 1010? Yeah, for Melbourne Arts Festival, it was um, 10, 10, 10. So uh, Melbourne Arts Festival bought Boredom's out and they got a bunch of local drummers uh, to play with the core um, American drummers who were the collaborators uh, with Boredom's around that period. And, they'd and done that was Hisham already, wasn't it? Yeah, Hisham, Butchie yeah. Fuego, Jeremy Hyman. There was um, Zach from Death Grips, Evelyn Morris, uh, Ben Eli from Regurgitator, uh, Cameron right. Potts and myself. And so we all played this ridiculously intense show at the Forum Theatre in Melbourne put a lot of work into kind of learning the piece. We we got the reference material and so it was a really intense, like structured piece they did for that show. Came on at I think we came on at like ten ten PM on the tenth of the tenth, two thousand ten. I yeah. think that, that's what it was. And we played for like a hundred minutes and it was everyone you know, we bled for it that night. It was really intense, <laughs> like sold out forum show, greatest show. Wow. Certainly, like the most intense show I've ever played. Um, they carried Yujiro, who was um, one of the uh, the Japanese drummers, like the core um, member, along with Yoshimi. Yeah. Carried Yujiro through um, through the crowd on like a platform. Wow! <laughs> like <laughs> it was this very kind of like um, uh, uh, ritualistic kind of affair. Very, very intense. Amazing. Yeah. So, but. That's where it started and they just asked me back. They kept asking me back. I can see why. I mean, I, I, from my experience of working with you, I mean, not only are you, were you really great at getting people together and helping organise the Australian part of that show, but I think you're also just really easy to work with, really open to ideas because you're obviously a great drummer. You know, you weren't like going, well, I, I'm amazing. Let's show off what my skills are. You know what I mean? It's it's very nice of you to say. Um, I think, look, all all I'd say is like, I grew up in a really small country town, um, in a place called Stall, which is in Western Victoria, just near the Grampians. And yeah, my dad, my dad was a, a shearer for 48 years. Oh, right. And so like I grew up, you know, we grew up being taken out to the sheds and, and, you know, like sweeping up dags and just yeah. rouse abouting and stuff like me and my brother, like rouse abouting and doing stuff like that. So it was a very, um, we had a very kind of humble upbringing and, and, you know, like my mum and dad just worked their asses off to support us and they gave us everything they could. Were they musical? He had a record collection, which I, you know, stole like the ACDC record and the Beatles um, anniversary record and stuff. But, and the song that I remember the most, the most vivid song, and I think that I can draw a link to this as well. So this helps me make sense of my, my present. Um, but mum and dad on Saturday mornings would play Rocky Burnett's Tired of Toe on the Line every weekend. Oh, I don't know I don't that know. song. So it's like in, the, I think it's like early 80s or maybe late 70s. Probably early eighties, basically like rock and roll, rock and roll, rockabilly kind of revival period. So, yeah, it's this like really. Um, I'm not going to explain it. You just have to. You have to dig it up. Anyway, that's everyone the song go that, listen to it. Why does that still resonate with you now? 
Well, I don't know. It's just one of those things that, you know, like luck of the draw as to what you get exposed to when you're a kid. But for me, that seeded my interest in rockabilly music. So I became obsessed with Charlie Feathers, like rock and roll, instrumental music of the late 50s, Western Swing, just stuff that was basically pre-Beatles. What's really amazing about that music is, you know, you listen to Suicide and you realise it's Suicide or a rockabilly band with synthesizers. So I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, like, that's what those songs are. They're rockabilly songs. I don't know if that's how other people hear it, but that's what I've always felt. And, again, you know, like, like for me, it's like I can go and listen to those, um, like, very early, like, recordings on 78s. So go back and listen to... Um, early kind of blues or gospel recordings. Yeah. And there's like this beautiful quality to those recordings, which kind of, it's like for me being interested in electronic sound and so drawing it back to like the Synthia AKS synthesizer or, mm. or modern modular synthesizers. Like there is a, for me in, in my hearing, there is, an, there is a, a parallel, aesthetic parallel for me that I can draw when I listen to like, say, like early Blind Willie Johnson recordings or something like that. And then the quality of, of that recording being like, I'm, I think I'm right in saying some of these recordings were, are like actually, you know, physical, like mechanical recordings. They're not yeah. like electrical recordings in, in some cases. But anything that was recorded basically through a funnel direct to um, 78, there's that quality of scratchy kind of eth- – ethereal weirdness by today's standards you listen to it and it feels like an otherworldly kind of sound totally matt i really want to talk to you about your upcoming show which oh, yes. is a, sh- a show of a synthesizer orchestra can you can you tell me about that that just sounds like my dream yeah, look it, it is it, it is a dream and i'll say that for me it's it's like I, I just refer to it as being like the dream project to work on um I've been asked to write some music and put a group of pe- people together to play this music. It's for uh, Mess at the Bowl. So Mess is Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio. And Mess is uh, a, a non-profit organisation here in Melbourne which uh, houses really one of the biggest collections of vintage uh, and, and, and modern synthesizers really anywhere. It's open to the public and accessible to everyone. So the idea of like democratising the collection for everyone's use. So the instruments at MESS are not owned by MESS. They're... they're On loan kind of thing. Yeah, they're on loan. So there's some very generous donors that allow their extensive collections in at MESS. So I think with with the thought in mind that they're better off being played because old things need to be played to stay alive absolutely yeah it's like um if you think of uh a conserve like conservation from the perspective of being a museum and i should say that mess has a museum grade collection of instruments really covering like the history of electronic um sound generators yeah in a museum you'd replicate and put on display or you'd put behind glass uh sadly uh, that would see would be the demise of these instruments so you know like a 1969 um uh, VCS three Mark one wow. uh, needs to be turned on and used to be preserved. So p- preservation is about use, and in this case, use is by the public. So you know the owners allow people to come in and use these instruments and and make records 
for a small membership fee. So amazing that that exists. It's um, I'm so envious that it's not in the same city as me, but I do plan on coming down to visit it soon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, look, Mess is amazing, and and you know, um, uh, Robin Fox and Byron Scullin started Mess back in 2000. Uh, it opened to the public in in April of 2016. And they've done just a, 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 an incredible job to um, develop the organisation to this point. Um, and there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening as a result of these great, um, the, the amount of work that's gone into the organisation. So this is a mess, it's a mess show, is it? Like a, it's curated by a mess or? Yeah, curated by mess. So um, it's it's at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl, which is uh, one of the, you know the, like I guess Melbourne's Sydney Opera House. <laughs> it's a very yeah. prestigious, um, large venue in in the Melbourne um, uh, near the Botanic Gardens there. Uh, and so Mess is curating this event. Um, it's called Mess at the Bowl. Uh, part of that night, so there's some really like wonderful artists playing on the bill. Rohan Ribeiro from My Disco, uh, Naretha Williams. Uh, OKEG, Simona Castrium, uh, Artificial, who is Nicole Skelties from BIFTEC, and then the Mess Synthesizer Orchestra led by Matt Watson, which is me. That's so the you. Mess, there's me. The, the Mess Synthesizer Orchestra <laughs> is um, – so I've written this work called Magnitudes for the Mess Synthesizer Orchestra. It features 16 uh, artists. So I've, the, the work has been written for 16 people and 40 instruments. Wow. And so when you say you've written this piece, um, what does that look like? What have, what have you written? Uh, a graphic score in four movements. So a graphic score just being like, yeah, explain graphic score to me. No, no worries. So a graphic score is basically pictures, lines, colours, it's an artistic interpretation or a visual interpretation of, of the, the musical work. Um, graphic scores are as varied as the artists that create art. So it's like yeah. however you interpret those sounds, um, that, that is fine. So if you, you know, it can be as abstract or as literal as you want. It can include um, standard traditional forms of notation. Um, but it's really up to you. For me, uh, I, I, what I love about graphic scores is their ability to communicate complex ideas in a simple way. Wow. So referring back to what we were talking talking about before, you know, like going down the rabbit hole with music that's like so complex that like you feel like you need a degree to listen to it. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the beauty of a graphic score is that um, – is that, you know, kids can do graphic scores if you just explain to them, like, just draw what you hear and yeah. just see what, what they come up with. And so over time, like, those skills can develop and it is about tuning into, your, the again, that sensory experience of music. Like, you know, hearing a sound, how would you – like, what colour would that sound be or what shape would it be? Is it a spiky shape? Is it, like, a flat – is it a wavy shape? Traditional forms of notation really just describe a couple of – elements and then there's some like very old symbols and language that goes along with that to give you a sense of dy dynamics that's beautiful and then I guess also having the having the musicians that can interpret that in a special way is I suppose one of the most important parts of that performance it's just communication so the graphic score is just a way to communicate so like a bunch of we had our first rehearsal for the um 
uh, for Magnitudes yesterday. Yeah, and how did it go? It was amazing. Holy hell, I was oh. really quite – I'm like, I don't – like I've worked tirelessly on this for months. I bet. And, you know, the, the show – uh, we have, you know, we have some good rehearsal, like lead up time for it, but the, you know, the 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 orchestra features some really phenomenal talents, and everyone just rolled with it. Like having something to start with was just so so great. People could make notes against it. Like the the work has been written, and there is shape, form, structure, yeah, um, you know, melodic content, movement that's in a key. There are things that are traditional, like in in composition terms but it's like you want to leave it open enough that 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 each individual artist can bring can feel a sense of freedom it's like you know someone should so there's two players in the in the orchestra that are playing vcs threes so amazing um you know that's um uh, Jana quill and nina buchanan both both incredible uh artists in their own right yeah um, making really good, really interesting electronic music and sound art. Um, both playing these instruments, r- not necessarily for the first time, but certainly for the first time in a live yeah. perspective. Is it all through DIs or how are you doing it? Yeah, everything. So there's like a, a ridiculous amount. I did a spreadsheet for cabling and DIs <laughs> <laughs> just for my own kind of pleasure. Um and thankfully, it's not you know I don't have to worry about like looking after that stuff. But there is a a, a fuck ton of DIs. And how's foldback gonna go? Just again, I think the misconception with with the mess synthesizer orchestra. Um, and actually, I can only really speak for my work, so magnitudes. But when I put this together, I didn't put it together with the idea it was the mess synthesizer techno orchestra. So it wasn't. There's nothing clocked. This is about 16 people playing the machines. And so the idea is that they're listening to what's happening. So everyone has personal set of headphones and a monitoring system through headphones. Okay, that makes sense. But, yeah, but only if they need it. The idea is that the the, the stage sound will be it's at a decent volume that you can just find your part within the, the massive sound. Yeah. The, the the vast array of instruments too. I've, I I kind of, it's not just a a cluster. Cluster is like kind of a very unpopular word at the moment, but it's um, great band though. Great band, excellent <laughs> band. Um, uh, but yeah, like like all of the instruments have their place. It's like you know if you if someone's writing for an orchestra, they they're not writing for every instrument ever invented. They're writing for a particular collection of instruments and then yeah. arranged in that way as well. So I mean that oh, I'm so I really wish I could see it. It just sounds so magical. I wish you could see it. We we need to fly you down for it. Is it gonna be videoed or anything, or is it gonna be documented? I think it's gonna be documented. Yeah, there'll be there'll be filming and and photographs and stuff. It is anyone in Melbourne should absolutely buy tickets for this show um like i i'm pretty confident in saying that it's it will be a pretty pretty unprecedented uh, array of instruments on stage so if you've ever dreamed of seeing a really big moog modular system similar to the one that you made on on the cover (laughs) out of felt (laughs) out of felt uh which is um, incredible i've got a story remind me to to bring up a story about that okay after i finish banging on um (laughs) um (laughs) But have you ever dreamt of seeing one of those big 
systems on stage, you'll see that. You'll see a massive, like, Buchler system. You'll see a, CM, a, a, a Fairlight CMI. Wow. So uh, that, um, uh, the, the very amazing Gregor is playing the Fairlight CMI. Amazing. Um, yeah, that sounds so, so special. There's just, I mean, I could, you know, I could bang on about, like, all the instruments. <laughs> but, but everything, like, and the thing that I'm most excited about is that my uh, um, my station, so the conductor station, I have two, I'll be playing two Synthi AKS synthesizers, mm. racked. Two of them. Racked, wow. Racked behind me. And then in front I have um, another modular system. Amazing. Um, wow, what a dream, Matt. Well, I mean, you, uh, do you know that the Tim Blake record, uh, Crystal Machine? No, I don't. To, like Google the just Google that record and it's really like that cover has been etched in my brain for the last twenty five years, and like to get to play on this size stage with this array of instruments with such an incredible group of people, and 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 being able to play these two synthy AKS behind me is like that's my. Yeah, that's my like little nod to that record cover, which I loved. I've for just a very looked long at time. it. It's amazing. It's got like a almost like a solar system behind someone playing modular synth. I should say I have. I, it's it's not unprecedented. I have. I made a record called Triple Synthy Live, where I played three synthy AKS um, or two synthy AKS and one synthy A. It's your favorite. Why not? Yeah, love it. <laughs> What's <More>. um. <laughs> Do you do you want to tell a story about my felt synthesizer? I t I totally want to tell a story about your felt um, synthesizer. So when when I was last in Los Angeles, um, uh, I have uh, friends, uh, a friend of mine who uh, works f uh, with Hans Zimmer. Oh yeah. Uh, they they surprised me, took me for a tour of that complex. It's like oh, it's the epicenter of like Hollywood sound. It's insane. Yeah. Just like like in incredible. Anyway, we, we did the, the full tour and I was just blown away. There's like, you know, the, the facade of the building is a modular synthesizer kind of etching or something. <laughs> you know, the whole building is like looks like a modular synth. And then and then in the hallways there's like random like modular synths kind of here and there. And there's a bunch of, you know, control rooms and production suites and mix edit suites and all this and Across wow. multiple buildings, are really mind blowing. I was like so thankful to to have this tour while I was in LA. And at the very end, um, I, I was like, okay, we got one more room to to just to show you. And I just had a sn sneak peek in, and it was it was Hans Zimmer's um, main, the famous big control room. So with the plush couches and wow. the original big modular systems built into the bookcases, and it was very much like. I was very mindful that I was in this kind of uh, sanctuary. Yeah, really. sacred space um, where the magic you know, happens. Yeah, so, you know, you're kind of like just there and taking it all in and, and everywhere I looked there was like these f instruments I'd, I'd dreamt of seeing and never seen before, original Moog modular. And then I scan the room and I see one of your felt synthesizers right on <laughs> Hans Zimmer's main desk. Right next to the Nyphonium. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and I thought of you and I, I said, that's incredible. That is kind of mind-blowing. Oh, thanks for telling that story, Matt. That's made my heart feel very warm. That's good. That's good. Well, let's go to the final question. 
Sure. What is your strangest show experience or the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music? I thought long and hard about this question and there's like a bunch of stuff that just you just don't want to think about again or, you know, <laughs> like things that when you're travelling or, 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 you know, and you know what it's like, just weird stuff oh, yeah. happens all the time. People are weird. And this is like perfectly weird at times and other times like unnervingly like weird. Yeah, totally. So I, 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 I thought about this and the story that I have is, I'm just wondering if I should preface this or just, I'm going to tell you what it's about. Okay. So it's about the time that I played, I got roped into playing two sold out shows on the drums with ESG. Wow. Okay. I'm so excited about this story. Yeah, so this was weird. This was the last time that ESG were in Australia. Anyway, I, I was really excited. I really wanted to see them. And I thought, fuck, we, we didn't get tickets to Meredith. Um, and then the night after they played Meredith, they were playing a run of shows in Melbourne. And I remember um, Elizabeth and I were out somewhere and it's like, we just didn't get tickets. I was like, oh, I, I drove past the venue and... I was like really bummed out. I'm like, fuck, I wish we had a scene. God, that would have been awesome, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, whatever, next time. So we went, we got drunk. I woke up the next morning and I was like, was like super hungover. And I just yeah. woke up with this sense of like regret that I'm like, I really just should have tried to get tickets. Well, like we should have just gone and see if we could get in. Anyway, out of the blue, I get a message from someone that I grew up with and I haven't seen in about 20 years, 25 years. And he lives in Geelong. And he's he's a very dear old friend of mine that we just live very you know he lives he's we've gone in different paths in our lives yeah. and out of the blue he he sends me a message he said hey Matt what are you doing I got someone that needs a drummer I'm like oh I'm like oh I don't, well you know <laughs> you know you get those calls sometimes like hey do you want to play sure. drums I'm like I don't want to play drums for everyone and um <laughs> not, I love everyone but I just you know I'm, I'm a bit I know, lazy I know. at times <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> So anyway, the um, the message comes. He said, "Yeah, here's um, you need to call Renee from ESG. Uh, she needs a drummer for tonight in Melbourne. Oh, I can't do it." My God! And I'm like, and I I literally thought I'm like, and I rolled over I'm in this hungover state. I rolled over and said, "Liz, check this message out. <laughs> this has to be bullshit. It's like someone's fucking with me, basically." God, and I should say that I'm a huge ESG fan. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Who isn't? Who isn't, right? So anyway, so I went, oh, and I armed an art for a bit. I'm, like, I'm just going to call this number. And if it's if it's total like crap, then I'll, I'll know. Rang the number and it was Renee from ESG. Whoa. And I'm like, what? And she goes, <laughs> she goes, oh, now I've heard about you. We need a drummer for tonight. Are you interested? And my mind is just doing, I'm just going around in circles going, I don't, like, I, and I said, I was like, yes. She goes, can you be at Soundcheck in an hour? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, and I looked at Elizabeth and I was like, I was like, and I did, like, I just said yes. I did what you said, what you said you did in New York. It's like, you just yep. say yes to this stuff and you work it out. Yeah. So I said yes. I jumped through a shower. I I, I didn't have to bring drums because there was drums already set up from the previous night. I got there and ESG rocked up, Renee rocks up, and she says, look, this is, we, I don't expect anything from you. Just play. We'll just make the best of it. We'll just make the best of it. Little wow. did she know that I knew the back catalogue. I know all those <laughs> songs. I love them. So you we had, the she's like, we've got. for the job. 
So she's like, we've got one hour. We've got a quick one hour, like, sound check. And we got in there and played the set. And, like, I was just, like, hungover and buzzing and freaking out going, I don't, like, this is so weird. But it worked. It worked, right? So I'm like, great. And they looked at me and they were, like, beaming. They are like, oh, you got, like, you got it. You got it. Amazing. Come back. She's like, come back. Come back tonight whatever time, so the call time was like an hour before the show or something, rocked up, sold out venue, walked out on stage wearing my ESG T-shirt with ESG <laughs> and proceeded to play oh. one of the most banging sets I've played in my life. Oh, my gosh. That and is so exciting. Standing ovation, people are just like losing their shit at the fact that like someone's just walked in and <laughs> – and 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 play the band. The, the the thing I should say, and, and it's like you know, ESG songs are like so nuanced in that you get that feel wrong, or you play that drum yeah. feel, that classic ESG feel too many times, you're gonna everyone will hate you. Yeah, yeah. Like you'll kill yeah. ESG, and then you'll be that the local artist that killed like everyone's experience <laughs> with ESG. Anyway, it went really well and they loved it. And after the show, Renee was just so grateful. And then we did it the night after as well. Came back, did a quick sound check in the morning. The night after was better. Everything about the show was – there was one little thing I had a kick drum in the wrong place for something. Next show killed it. Start to end, <laughs> standing ovation, you know, like when I say standing ovation, like drunken kind of mental sure. vibey <laughs> ovation. But, you know, it's like you feel you – feel you feel like you've done a good job. And I think yeah. for me that that is hands down one of the one of the most kind of left field out of all the things that I've I've done over the years, that is really the thing that stands out as being like as a musician just being roped into or finding yourself in that situation where it's like like that can't be planned. That's no. that's a degree of synchronicity, it's a degree of luck. Absolutely. And it's validation for working really hard at a craft since, you know, since you're at jazz school. Yeah, it's just about being a fan, being interested in sound, being interested in music, taking in, you know, I worked at a record store for like 16 years, secondhand record store. And I just like bought everything and I listened to everything. I love it. That's such a good story. What a great life. Sometimes that stuff just happens and you have to pinch yourself, don't you? Yeah, it's it's a privilege too, I guess. You've got to be really grateful because I think you know careers in music are not I don't really kind of personally like believe so much in in career music I just believe in you know like doing things that you love and good things happen sometimes um really great things happen that's a perfect time to end this podcast I reckon on a really beautiful high note thank you Saya thank you so much (laughs) 